Smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken in many ways. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today we're continuing our series following and sharing the way of Jesus. In this episode, Matt Waldron is speaking to us from Matthew 10, verses 34 to 42. Love unites, and that divides. Here's Matt. Love unites, but that divides. Uh, Love unites people, but then that process can divide people. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist, he's an American and he's non-religious. He uh, specialises in how human beings experience morality, how we think about right and wrong, not how we should, but how we do. Uh, He was teaching a unit at a university on this subject, and in order to analyse how people think about right and wrong, you kind of have to analyse examples of, you know, what's going on in people's heads when they're thinking about right and wrong. And you you kind of have to include examples of people thinking about it that you don't agree with. Otherwise, you wouldn't be thinking about the whole picture. And so, uh, at one point in the course, he played a recording of an interview with someone explaining why they thought same-sex marriage was wrong. Height was playing this as an example of irrational moral thinking. He was playing this as an example he disagreed with. He was playing it uh, as an example he expected the class to disagree with. But even with all of that, a large number of the class were deeply offended that he had subjected them to that experience. Uh, There were a number of complaints to the university that they had been traumatised, that it had harmed them, that it could damage them to be exposed to ideas that they disagree with. Well, uh, Haidt went on to write a book with Greg Lukianoff. The book is called the coddling of the American mind. In it, they argue that uh, in our kind of time, we tend to be overprotective of children and that this is damaging our children. So, for example, in our right desire to protect children from a mood disorder like depression, we don't want them to ever feel depressed. In our right desire to protect children from uh, anxiety disorders, we try to stop them from ever feeling anxious. In our right desire to protect children from bullying, we end up trying to protect them from any kind of disagreement. And so Lukianoff and Haidt reckon that in the last few years, we finally crossed the point where young adults have believed what we've been teaching them. That many young adults believe that disagreement is medically dangerous. But Lukianoff and Haidt argue that actually emotional resilience is like physical resilience. It cannot be built without appropriate graded pressure on the system, right? Your immune system won't develop properly if it has never to cope with a virus. It also won't cope properly if you've never been exposed to a virus and then suddenly you're exposed to all of them. You'll get very sick, that'll be very bad, right? It needs to be one step at a time. And they argue that's how emotional resilience uh, develops as well. Uh, You need to be exposed Uh, exposed to uh, pressure emotionally, stress, uh, challenges one step at a time and grow up and be a mature adult. Uh, You won't learn to think for yourself if you're never faced appropriately with ideas you disagree with. Well, uh, if that's 
a massively radical idea to you, so much so that it's possibly offensive, you should probably stop listening to this talk now, because that's just getting started. And as I said, you've got to take things one step at a time. So if this is too many steps for you, well, walk out, press pause on the internet, however you listen to this talk. Uh, but do keep taking the next step of learning to cope with disagreement, otherwise you'll never learn to think for yourself. Well, let's get into what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Uh, Jesus not only causes division, he says in this section that causing division is his aim. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36 say, Do not suppose, this is Jesus talking, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Do not suppose that Jesus has come to bring peace. Why would you suppose that? Well, lots of reasons. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, It's good to be a person who makes peace. In fact, in Matthew 5 verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In other words, bringing peace is the kind of thing that God is on about. It's the kind of thing that makes people think they are from God. So surely if Jesus is the unique Son of God, He should be the peacemaker. So why does Jesus say, don't suppose come to bring peace. Well, the first thing to see is Jesus came to bring division, not violence. When Jesus says he came to bring a sword, it's a spiritual sword, not a physical sword. This is very clear when Jesus was arrested, one of his companions pulled out a sword, attacked the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off, and Jesus put a stop to it and healed the man who'd been injured and uh, said, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. That's in Matthew 26. So Jesus is not telling his people to take up weapons. He's not even telling his people to be aggressive. But what he is saying is that what he is doing will necessarily divide people. Sometimes even the closest, most loving people will end up divided by hate because of Jesus, right? Verses 35 and 36, I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Just to be clear, Jesus is not saying families are bad. He's not saying he's come to deconstruct the family unit. When a rich man asked Jesus what he must do to get eternal life, Jesus said, keep the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. That's Matthew 19. So he's not saying don't be faithful to your family. He's not saying don't love your family. Jesus teaches us to love our neighbour as ourselves. But he is saying sometimes even the people who are closest to each other, the people who are most similar to each other, are going to disagree and fall out over Jesus. We're coming to the end of Matthew chapter 10, a seminar that Jesus gave his 12 disciples before sending them out to spread his message, to share his way with, Je with, his way with people. And Jesus has been explaining that there's going to be a variety of responses. Some people are going to respond positively 
and some people are going to respond negatively. Some people are going to trust Jesus and so turn their lives around to follow His way. Some people are going to hear and just think it doesn't apply to them or not believe it and just go on with life as they did before. At this point in the seminar, Jesus is explaining that this is the plan. Uh, When some people reject Jesus and His way, that doesn't mean that something has gone wrong. We are responsible for ourselves as individuals for how we respond to Jesus. That is the plan. And the consequence of that is people are going to be divided over Jesus. Right? Jesus needs his way to be spread. People need to be responsible for their personal response to Jesus. Therefore, people are going to be divided. That is a necessary part of the plan. Uh, most weeks in our church service at Three Crosses, we have a kid's spot. Uh, at the moment, the kids are studying Bible stories about people having different responses to Jesus. So, uh, as you're, I think, all aware, to introduce that, the kids' spots have been showing people reacting differently to all sorts of things. Some people like feeling slime, some people don't. Some people like the smell of coriander, some people don't. Some people like hugs, some people don't. My favourite so far, though, was the one where we had... Uh, a girl and a boy up the front, and the thing we watched them respond to was the song Let It Go from Frozen. And uh, the girl smiled and enjoyed the song and uh, I think was mostly embarrassed. Uh, But the boy fell on the floor covering his ears and moaning. Now, overacting aside, one of the reasons we might hate a song so much is because other people love it so much. Right? If you hear a song and you don't like it, you can just not listen to it again. Right? There's no problem. Unless lots of other people like it. And so they play it on the radio all the time. They play it when you're in the shopping centre. Your friends insist on playing it at social gatherings. Then, people start singing it spontaneously when something reminds them of it. It's not just that you don't like it, you can't escape it. It feels like the whole world has gone crazy and you start to wonder if your friends have been replaced by alien replicants and they're coming for you next. Right now you hate the song! So sometimes the thing that makes us hate something is other people loving it so much. So what does this mean for trying to share the way of Jesus with people? Well, we can't not love Jesus. We can't not love Jesus, but we can try not to nag people. Does that make sense? We, can, we have to, responding to Jesus, as soon as you understand who Jesus is, you've got to love him, you've got to respond in loving him. You can't not be enthusiastic, but you can try not to nag people, try not to trap people into following Jesus. Right? Jesus brings division. We are each responsible for how we respond to Jesus, but we don't need to introduce more division, kind of extra helpings of division. Jesus does tell his followers to be peacemakers. We're not supposed to be hostile towards people. People will respond negatively to Jesus without our help. So we can be enthusiastic about Jesus without being naggy or hostile. So, for example... 
Someone finds out that you're a Christian, they ask you about that. There's only time for a one-sentence answer because you're busy with whatever's going on when they, this happens. And afterwards, you think of 10 better things you could have said. So later, you say to them, look, I don't want to push anything on you, but you asked me about my faith, and this is really important to me, so I would love to sit down and talk about it with you. It's not going to change me respecting you and supporting you as a person, so it's up to you, I won't nag you about it, but I want to tell you it is really important to me. Honest, direct, respecting their responsibility for how they respond to Jesus. It's better to have one intentional conversation where you actually get to share the gospel, where you actually get to share your testimony, than to just keep up a stream of nagging till the, until they feel the only way to escape is to stop being friends. Of course, people will still take offence just at Jesus. People will still stop being your friend, but we don't need to make it worse. So if Jesus brings division, even between family members, even when people are respectful to each other, we've got to ask, is it worth it? Well, it is because Jesus is worthy of our greatest love. Have a look at verses 37 to 39. Jesus says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying he is worthy of our greatest love. He says, if you don't love him more than anyone else, you are not worthy of him. You haven't really got it. In fact, if you do not take up your cross, you're not really following Jesus properly. Taking up a cross is what prisoners did when they were about to be executed by crucifixion. Right? It's what Jesus did shortly before he was crucified. He took up a cross and carried it. Crucifixion was a standard method of execution in the Roman Empire. You nailed the person to the timbers. They couldn't hold themselves up properly, so they would have trouble breathing. Of course, you can't help trying to breathe. So the person was slowly and excruciatingly tortured to death by suffocation. It was terrifying. It was done publicly. They crucified you naked. You might lose control of your bodily functions. It was shameful. Taking up a cross symbolizes signing up for that kind of suffering and death. Jesus says, if I do not love him more than life, if I do not love him more than avoiding pain, more than avoiding shame, then I'm not worthy of him because he deserves that kind of love. If I don't understand that Jesus is more important than everything else, then I don't understand him. He really is more important. He really is worth that love. Why? Look at verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus says the only way to really find life is to give it to him. 
That's the way you love someone more than anything else. You live for them. You make them your top priority. You do everything to try and make them happy. You enjoy life with them. You enjoy being with them. In fact, the things that make them happy make you happy. You give your life to them. Jesus says, if you don't want to give me your life, you don't really understand who I am. If you don't love me that much, you don't really get it. Jesus is claiming he is really worth that love. He's saying we must love him totally. Well, no wonder he expects to divide people. It's completely understandable that some people are going to be offended by Jesus because no one can make that claim on people except God. The only person who can say, you should love me more than anything else, if you don't love me, you're wrecking your life. The only person who's entitled to say that is God. God created us for himself. To have peace and wholeness and happiness with Him. In a relationship with Him. But we've all turned away from God and seek life without Him. God, in His incredible kindness, makes that disaster catch up with us very slowly. So we have time to repent, to turn back to Him to change our minds. And God came to earth in the person of God the Son. He took to himself a human nature to live as human, to show us what life is about, to sacrifice himself for us, to love us and persuade us to come back to him. And so if we turn back to Jesus as Lord, then we get new life. If we give up wanting everything without God, then we get everything with God. The way it's meant to be. Joy and peace and meaning and purpose and truth and personal growth and knowing God personally now and eternal life in a renewed body in a renewed world forever. But if we are determined not to treat God as God, if we keep trying to have life on our own terms, keep trying to save our lives ourselves, then one day our separation from God will become final and complete and we die forever. That's why Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Imagine you're drifting on a life raft in the middle of the ocean, so desperately thirsty surrounded by water, but it's salty. If you drink it, it makes you even thirstier and just dehydrates you quicker. The only solution is radical. You can only get water through a different orifice to what you used to. If you need more explanation of that illustration, we'll show you Bear Grylls later. Um, it's so easy to just drift through life. Right, Wanting peace and health and happiness, surrounded by life, but it's sinful if we grab it, collect it, live it. It just makes us want more. It just makes us turn further away from God. It never really, truly satisfies. The only solution is radical. You can only get life through Jesus. Work looks good. 
Well, it is. But it's only going to give you life through Jesus. Holiday looks good. Well, it is. But it's only going to give life through Jesus. Helping other people looks good. Well, that's good because it is. But it only gives true life through Jesus. Growing as a person looks good. Because it is. We all need to grow as people. But it only really works. It only gives true life when it's through Jesus. Romance looks good. Sex looks good. Time to myself looks good. These things are all good, but they only give life when we give our lives to Jesus. You must love Jesus so much that you would give up everything for him. That way, he gives you fullness of life no matter what your circumstances are. So obvious question is, do I love Jesus that much? How would I know? How can we grow in loving Jesus to make sure we're really loving him the way he deserves? Well, be encouraged by verses 40 to 42. Jesus continues... Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So this is a great encouragement. Let me take each of these verses and try and put it in my own words. Hopefully that will help. So verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. This is saying anyone who welcomes a disciple of Jesus is welcoming Jesus, and by welcoming Jesus, they are welcoming God the Father. So, you know you have a relationship with God the Father if you have a relationship with Jesus which you know you have if you have a relationship with his disciples as his disciples. How does that work? Verse 41. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. In other words, whoever welcomes a person who speaks God's word as a person who speaks God's word, whoever respects or cooperates with God's word receives the reward of people who speak God's word. The next one about the righteous person. Whoever welcomes a person who does what is right because they do what is right. In other words, whoever respects or cooperates with doing what is right receives the reward of people who do what is right. So if you are part of God's people, Whatever your part is, but if you're playing some part in God's people, spreading God's word and doing what's right, then you receive the reward of God's people. Verse 42. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Even if you play the smallest part, in God's people, following and sharing Jesus. 
if you make the smallest possible contribution to people living for Jesus, if you genuinely love Jesus, then you won't miss out. So how do I make sure I'm loving Jesus properly? Love his people, love his word, love his way. If you're doing that sincerely at all, you certainly will not miss out. SBS has a media outlet for soccer. It's called The World Game. It's got this vibe in the advertising of bringing the world together, right? Different people from different countries, different languages, different walks of life, different lifestyles, rich, poor, different genders, different sexualities. We can all be united by soccer. Players, supporters, coaches, junior teams, fans at home, we can all be united by soccer. Until there's a soccer riot. They don't put that in the ads for some reason. Until someone loses, and people think that's not part of the game. Until someone gambles on the outcome and loses a lot of money. Until there's corporate sponsors who think it's important for their bottom line. Until there's superstar salaries paid to young adults with inadequate support or accountability. Or just until Monday when we forget about the game and have to face real life. Right? Sport shows us the potential for people to be united. And it shows us the need for a bigger love to unite us. Jesus is worthy of our greatest love. And so he really can unite humanity. If we give up everything for Jesus, then nothing else can divide us. We can live with any different difference or disagreement. We can be united with everyone because Jesus is worth it. We can be united with everyone, but we can't make everyone accept that. There are many things that people do divide over. There's only one thing worth dividing over. That's Jesus. There's a little book that has some great reflections on this sort of thing called Right Side Up by Paul Grimmond. Uh, following Jesus is about giving up everything because Jesus completely turns our lives over. He turns them, he turns us right side up. Uh, so in the first chapter, Paul shares a story from his mate Grant. Uh, it's not short, but it's a great example. So let me read it to you in Grant's own words. I was raised as a Christian, at least to begin with. However, around the time I was eight, family life started to change. Busyness set in, and God, church, and prayer got squeezed out. I was quite confused about this, but was assured that Christians don't have to go to church every week as a rule. The first sense that something might be wrong in my family came in high school when I met Christians who were genuinely committed to Jesus. They let Jesus rule every aspect of their lives and wanted the good news about him to spread no matter the cost to their reputations or lifestyles. I couldn't understand why they were so willing to suffer. These Christians sparked an intense personal conflict. 
the conflict involved two inconsistent truths that I desperately tried to hold in tension. The first truth was that my parents and siblings were still Christian because they said they were, even if they totally didn't look like it. The second truth was that, as the Bible says, faith without works is dead, and not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. To address this internal conflict would have involved admitting to myself that my parents and siblings were fatally mistaken and literally doomed. That was a heartbreaking truth I simply simply didn't know how to deal with on my own as a child, so I pretended it was false. Under this logic, I myself didn't have to go to church regularly either and could quietly disobey God when I really wanted to. The Christians I socialised with at university were confused by my inconsistent behaviour, baffled that I seemed to know the gospel so well and yet be totally content to miss Bible study, sometimes for 10 weeks at a time. Finally, after many years, my Bible study leader told me to get in or get out. I needed to stop toying with Jesus. He also insisted that I attend a five-day conference about knowing God from the Bible. I reluctantly agreed. The conference was five days of uninterrupted meditation on God's holiness and my sinfulness. It allowed me to consider my internal conflict and what to do about it. God changed me irrevocably. I started to let Jesus rule areas of my life I'd previously pushed him out of. This led to me committing to regular Sunday evening church attendance, even if it meant missing a Sunday evening family dinner, an important family event. This seemingly little change crystallized the tension within my family. Previously, I had only ever gone to church when there wasn't a family dinner on. But once I started going almost every week, my parents felt like they'd been snubbed for church. In their eyes, I'd been bewitched by overzealous, excessively religious despots who had wickedly convinced me to put church above family. Unfortunately, this was never fully addressed through healthy family discussion. My family, like many, had evolved a complex set of silently agreed-upon taboo conversation topics. It was a heavy taboo to talk about religion or Christianity, particularly on a deep or personal level. Of course, I wanted to talk about Christianity like nothing else, but the topic was too volatile. Every time I tried to talk about it, the conversation would spontaneously combust into an argument so the tension just simmered silently. Eventually, after many months, it became clear to my family that the church had not bewitched me. They came to understand that I still loved them and that being Christian didn't mean I would never talk to them again. The big lesson I learned was that they could only get this by long-term actions not words. However, there is still an awkward moment when I walk into the kitchen after church. 
I know that my choice to go to church still raises questions and implies some sort of criticism. It's very tempting for me to capitulate and fall back into line. Church attendance when and if convenient. Lifestyle choices informed by Christianity rather than ruled by it. And no more talking about Jesus. But what I'd really be doing is pushing away Jesus. That's simply not an option. I can't deny my Creator and Redeemer. All my childhood, I was terrified something would break up my family. Ironically, I've become the most divisive person in it. While I still love my family, am grateful to my parents and want to spend time with all of them, I refuse to pretend that everything is okay between all of us and God. I will also not give up on patiently and gently trying to tell my family about Jesus. I refuse to give up because God will always be with me. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, it is heartbreaking to see the one thing that can unite humanity uh, pushed away by people. And yet we know uh, it's your plan that each of us is responsible. Responsible to you. Responsible for what we do when we hear the message of Jesus. So, Father, please help us to take that responsibility seriously, both for ourselves and for others. Please help us to uh, be honest and uh, direct with people, uh, but help us uh, to make clear to people that we know they're responsible uh, for what they do with that information We pray you give us wisdom not to create barriers that don't need to be there. We also pray for ourselves that you would help us to respond wholeheartedly to Jesus. Help us to see afresh that he really does deserve our greatest love. We pray that in loving him, that would overflow in loving others that would overflow in uniting us with your people and having open arms for the rest of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.